I'm going to talk about two ships. That might sound a little bit rivet counting and a little bit narrowly focused, but believe me, it's a big story. This is a book. It's a little book of about 50,000 words. I start with an introduction to the pre-war careers of these two vessels. I then talk about the fundraising and fitting out, which was an amazing story. The Mahino at Gallipoli. I don't think many people know that the merchant seafarers aboard the Mahino were our direct civilian contribution to that campaign. I then look at the Mahino and Marama together in their busiest year of 1916. I've got a chapter on shipboard life, and anyone who's ever spent any time aboard a ship will know sort of nutty ver maritime version of cabin fever can often take over people's lives when they're at close confines and seeing each other's privileges or lack thereof. There's a one chapter covering the latter part of the war, and then there's just a very brief homage to the post-war careers and the legacies that the ships left behind. Now, there is a heap of paper about these two vessels. When I did my PhD mumble years ago, another age and universe, I uh, went through the union company papers and they're extraordinarily um, extensive. They're one of the best business archives in the southern hemisphere. Archives New Zealand. Now, good thing about uh, anything requisitioned by the army in World War I is that there are papers and papers and papers, including individual files on which flags could be flown and under which circumstances and things like that. So there's no shortage of information. The usual uh, places, um, there's not much written by the seafarers. Uh, ships officers were permanent employees of the company in those days. Merchant seafarers were not. They were casual labour, so they tend not to leave much behind. And then there's the, the wonderful collectors around the country, um, Ian Farquhar, Mr Ships of Dunedin, who's got a ginormous collection of photographs down there, and Matt Pomeroy, who very generously supplied me with about a dozen. Now, there have always been hospital ships, and I'll talk about that a bit later, but during the latter part of the 19th century, you see a number of things happening. First is the attempt and reaction to the, the increasing size of the slaughter on the battlefields, initially in Europe and, of course, uh, during the American Civil War, so that people understand that there has to be some better treatment of casualties. And of course, you, m many of you will remember that the British government and the army authorities were roundly criticised for the quality of medical care in both the Crimean War and, of course, in the South African War at the end of the century. So you see this process driven in Europe of, in, its, in a sense, trying to humanise some of the aspects of the battlefield and, and that concept of the laws of war. And really, um, the rules that governed what happened in World War I can really be dated to around about 1905, 1906. And there's quite a process for these vessels. So the, the belligerents had to supply all of the technical details about the ships. They had to use large uh, vessels and they had to be very, very uh, distinctively uh, painted and illuminated at night. And there's a whole range of other things below that, and I'll talk about the fact that they can't carry any weapons at all. Couldn't even carry the normal um, navigational codes uh, during World War I, because they were regarded as government information. 
Now we talk about hospital ships. Uh, there were three types. Uh, the Mahino and Marama were full hospital ships. In other words, they had a complete fit out. Hospital carriers, usually it took uh, about nine weeks on average in World War I for uh, an Allied hospital ship to be converted. At times they needed vessels much faster than that and they produced what's known as a um, hospital carrier, sort of a warehouse version of Kirkaldian stains, if you like. Very limited fit out and quality of facilities, but again distinctively marked. And then there were the ambulance transports, the so-called black ships, which were just normally painted. Uh, they could carry uh, patients, but they could also carry armaments. Therefore, they were legitimate targets. I mean, why, why spend a year and a bit doing a history of two ships? Well, first of all, they were in some ways the acceptable face of war for New Zealanders. I don't think you can go through a single general history of World War I without seeing a photograph or a painting or a reference to one or both of them. Secondly, uh, they were fitted out by public subscription. It was an enormous exercise led, as I'll show a bit later, by Lord Liverpool. And above all, they demonstrate the strategic importance of the merchant marine to New Zealand's contribution to the war. Yes, we sent troops to the Mediterranean and to Europe, but we were very important as a supplier of raw materials and by having a, a very large merchant marine by international standards. And that was really a large part of our wartime contribution. I'll just race through this. Um, the Union Steamship Company of Dunedin went out of business just over a decade ago. It was around for 125 years. For most of its existence, it was the largest shipping line in the Southern Hemisphere. It was the largest New Zealand shipping line and it was bigger than the five largest Australian shipping companies put together in 1914. So we're talking about something that's of international strategic significance. Based in Dunedin, it was a, a happy merger between Scottish and New Zealand capital. Always the British side pumped in more shares than the New Zealand company, although it was run very distinctively from New Zealand. And you see that within just a few years of being formed, it completely dominated both the New Zealand coast and the Trans-Tasman. took over the Tasna Tasmanian Steam Company in 1891, so again you see a lot of uh, New Zealand dominance of the Australian shipping routes as well. Tied up like all competitive private enterprise companies through monopolies and secret agreements and profit sharing agreements, there's nothing new about that. And as I said, by 1914 a very large company. Um, it had a founding uh, shareholder in William Denny and Brothers of Dumbarton, Scotland, uh, a very advanced Scottish shipbuilder, specialised in high-speed, um, shallow draft vessels, very um, much the sorts of vessels that the Union Company ran on the New Zealand coast and between Tasmania and Melbourne and Sydney. And this is their experimental tank, uh, dates from 1882, it's actually now a museum. Uh, in Scotland. It's the only remnant really. Um, the company went out of business in 1962 after finishing the Aramoana for New Zealand Railways. Around about uh, the early 1900s there was a, a, a great interest in uh, turbines for vessels. Now turbines are, are much quieter, they don't vibrate as much and they're perfect for passenger ships, but it was very cutting edge. So James Mills, who was the managing director of Union, was on a trial 
of a very small vessel at Denny's in 1903, and he loved it so much he wanted to make the next Trans-Tasman ship um, a, a turbine vessel. The uh, yard turned him down and said, just wait a few years, and this was sort of a classic case where people had to learn by experiment. There you've got the Mahino fitting out at Dumbarton. She's about 5,500 tonnes, so she's a, a mid-sized vessel, about half the size of the average uh, transatlantic ship of the day. This is a bit of the interior. Um, this is the first class uh, dining room and salon. Notice the very long tables. Everyone, in a sense, messed together, even in first class in those days. And this was pretty much the end of that arrangement. The next ship, the uh, Marama, had the much more conventional four or two-person two tables. She carried uh, 230 first class passengers, 122nd, 67 crew and 100, uh, sorry, 67 third class and 113 crew. Now, five and a half thousand tons. If you take down the, bro the broken down um, Arateri today, she's about 17,000. So you're nice and cosy together aboard a ship like this, but it wouldn't have been seen so 100 years ago. This is a, a shot of her just about to be launched. Uh, triple screws there, they gave a lot of problems and ship had to be re-engined just before the war, but this is a quite a stunning shot which the Hawkins recently used for a, a poster. This is the Marama, um, very different ship, one funnel went back to conventional engineering. Uh, Union Company and Denny's had an enormous falling out over the Mahino's deficiencies, so the next two uh, trans uh, Tasman liners went back to a much more conventional arrangement and that was the end of the cosy relationship between Denny's and Union. Um, there's an old sailor's expression that a ship could roll on wet grass, that was very much the case with the Mahino. Even during World War I the nurses talk about you know there, there are jam rolls and then there's the Mahino rolls. People were heading to the heads or sticking their heads in buckets, uh, even throughout most of World War I aboard it. This is the Marama, she was steadier, and a, but you know, this is quite an interesting little postcard there. She was mainly on the Pacific, although she did do trans-Tasman trips. As I said, um, long before World War I, she, uh, the Mahino was known as the Terrible Turk. The firemen who always had a bad time on coal-fired vessels found her the sort of ship that you didn't turn up the corner and, and look for a job on. It was quite famous that uh, firemen would disappear on hiring days for the Mahino and turn up the next day. Um, one engineer uh, who later was the chief engineer for the company talked about Dante's Inferno aboard the vessel. She was a coal leader. She consumed vast quantities of coal. And in those days, of course, you've got both the, the firemen and the trimmers, so you've got this huge amount of coal there, and one's passing the coal forward to the others, and the firemen are then putting it on, which was quite a skilled job. The Mahino was difficult for two reasons. It, it is relevant to what happened in World War I. Uh, one, she just ate so much coal that people were sweating their way through um, their stints there. And the second, the firebox construction was uh, unwieldy in that it was up quite high, so people had to lift, which is why she had such awful industrial relations. And this is um, a Liberal MP's comments, which I won't read out. So the ship was notorious before World War I for being a, a hard operation. Now, 
given you the background on the two ships, let's talk about hospital ships. I mean, if I was the Minister of Arts, Culture and Heritage, I would quote Herodotus. Uh, they do, there are references going back to Greek and Roman history for hospital vessels accompanying war fleets. The important thing is they were f for sailors aboard these vessels, not for soldiers. And that's the big change in World War I, and it goes around the other way. And in fact, in 1914, the Admiralty, which had been planning for a long time for a major war with Germany, had really decided it needed no more than five hospital ships. Three uh, uh, cross-channel packets and a couple of liners. So what changed? Well, first of all, the ships got slightly better than this. This is a classic Royal Navy hospital ship uh, from the early 19th century, basically a cut-down hulk, and probably not too much hygienic than some of the prison uh, hulks that were there. So the big change, though, was the industrial-scale uh, slaughter on the Western Front. They didn't anticipate casualties on the scale that started to be experienced. So there was a need to get people first from the battlefield and then across the channel to hospitals and convalescent centres. And the second, as I said, they are now serving uh, soldiers, not sailors. Very few Royal Navy vessels were needed to be accompanied by hospital ships during World War I because most of them were swinging at their anchors at Recife on Scarpa Flow, quite close to shore-based medical facilities. And for New Zealand, it was Gallipoli. It came as a shock, as I'm sure many of you in this room will know, with the scale of the casualties from April onwards. There had been a little bit of discussion between the Admiralty and between the New Zealand government about New Zealand possibly contributing a hospital ship. It was turned down and then we start seeing the newspaper lists. And I'll introduce you to this chap, Old Liver, as the Prince of Wales described him in 1920 while visiting here. Lord Liverpool. Now the Governor had a ceremonial role. He could advise he could warn, and then he signed the bloody paperwork. Liverpool, um, there's a, a colonial office official in 1913 who stayed at Government House for what he called a, a dull soup dinner there, and he described Liverpool as, quote, quite brainless, and Lady Liverpool distinctly ordinary, but by th no means alarming. <laughs> Which is probably how most of the cabinet ministers who dealt with Liverpool during World War I would have felt. He was prickly, he was stuffy, he stood on protocol, he interfered. And he interfered a lot in the hospital ships. But to be fair, even the biggest fools sometimes get things right by accident. And he did two things that are important uh, in World War I. First is he banged heads together between the Reform Party and the Liberal Party to produce the National Coalition Government. And the second was his interest in the hospital ships and encouraging them. Now, this was basically the deal. The government originally uh, intended to pay for all of the costs, as it did with troop transports and Wahini, which became a dispatch vessel, and then Mainla. In other words, they would pay the whole lot. Time charter, standard commercial operation under Admiralty B rates. Liverpool, uh, purely on his own initiative, decided 
that there should be a public appeal to help fit out the medical facilities aboard the ships and provide comforts for the patients and the medics. And it was actually quite a good idea. Uh, partly he was um, the patron of the St John um, Association and he'd been having his own World War I because the Red Cross hated the St John's and vice versa as much as the French and the Germans did. So partly this was helping to get a better solution between these two. But partly uh, because he saw that there, there was a desire amongst many civilians, particularly the ones who were too old or didn't have sons or daughters to send away, to do their bit, as was said during World War II. So it was something tangible. It was a way for people to express their patriotism. And it was also, for all but a very few people, a positive thing. In other words, it was not manufacturing guns. It was supporting the acceptable side of war, if there is such a thing. So fundraising got underway up and down the country. Uh, the army supplied Liverpool with a list of things um, that were needed, beds, surgical equipments, nightingales, um, which is a type of garment, uh, bandages, uh, and all sorts of things like this. This is a, a group uh, near Nelson, and there are a number of really bad models of the Mahino made. To, to raise funds, but it, it extended um, across a huge part of the community. They raised about £67,000 in the initial one, which is a fair sum of money for 1915. Now, the big boys came up with the big checks. A union company, well, they were going to be rolling uh, in the aisles over this one, so they gave uh, a £1,000. Spates, good old Spates, uh, 500 because union company is a Dunedin company, and the Rhodes Brothers, 500 But lots of things were much smaller. Um, children's penny drives, concerts, uh, auctioning a flag in Omaru. Uh, there was Aimwell, um, the racehorse, auctioned. You had five minutes of ownership uh, of Aimwell if you gave a pound. And also lots of interesting things. Businesses and workforces sometimes got together and they gave gifts in kind. Uh, dear old Flemings down in Gore gave Cremota products. It was the Sydenham Furniture Factory which made deck chairs. And the uh, company provided the materials and the workers worked on them on Saturday afternoon, which was part of their time off. So you see enormous range of things, concerts, sports events. Um, it'd be ridiculous to suggest that everybody in the country got in behind this, but it was a very popular, high-profile thing. And of course Red Cross and things like that got involved. Uh, the mayors of the four main centres set up receiving centres for gifts so people could bring in their, their used uh, books for the ship's libraries and all that sort of stuff. And of course Government House in both Auckland and Wellington was used for wrapping things which were dispatched to the ships. And this is just a nice example of some ephemera from uh, the Turnbull Library of the Patriotic Sports Carnival in 1915. There were golf matches in the centre of the North Island and really tiny little places. So it was just about everywhere. There was very little opposition. Um, one of the few who came out against it was John Payne, who was uh, the Liberal MP for Grey Lynn. He did a cheeky little amendment to the Auckland Cooperative Building Society, which voted each director uh, £50 to transfer to the hospital ship fund. And he uh, successfully, actually successfully, it was an interesting story which I think was underreported by the press, cut that down to uh, just over tuppence per director. 
and then was roundly chastised by the um, more conservative press about this. Cambridge Borough Council wrote a letter to James Allen questioning uh, whether it would have not been more efficient to have a graduated income tax. And of course the Maoriland workers' correspondence talked about hospital ship cadging, but that was when the second appeal for the second ship came along. So you could say there was very, very limited opposition to this. The ships were fitted out at Port Chalmers. This was Dunedin is the home of the Union Company. This was the biggest marine repair works in New Zealand. It didn't build ships, but it could rebuild them, and it had, it had completely re-engined uh, the uh, Mahino just before the war. And there you have it, just over four weeks to convert the vessel. It involves stripping out all the passenger accommodation, the saloons, uh, all the decorative wooden features, the whole lot, and then building a first-class floating hospital with operating <laughs> theatres, uh, anaesthetic rooms, uh, wards, and even a padded cell for what was then described as the lunatics. So that's not bad. You know, four weeks, try to get a resource consent in Wellington for a fence in four weeks. The work was quite extensive. It was helped by the fact that the, uh, Dunedin was still the centre of New Zealand heavy engineering and there were a number of firms that did make medical and dental facilities and beds and hospital uh, fit-outs there. And also a Dr Falconer from the Otago uh, Hospital Board who was also in the territorial. So he supervised the fit-out of not only the hospital ships but also troop transports and visited every vessel when it came back. Now the usual story of heading to the Med and everyone had their photos taken. Sphinxing, as they called it, lovely term. This is the broad summary of the two ships in the war. Mahino at Gallipoli from the 25th of August onwards right to the end. Uh, Marama arrived in January, just after the evacuation. And their peak performance was on the Somme, or after Somme run, in 1916. They moved to almost 25,000 people, which is incredible when you think that. Uh, they were fitted out for 450 cots and 600 cots, respectively. On one occasion, the Marama had about 1,200 people aboard. And the, the, the letters back and the reports from the officers commanding talk about the ships crossing each other, yahooing over the rails. The nurses talk, we must have sounded half like savages, one nurse wrote. And they were just shuttling to and from, to and from. And most of the rest of the war was on the long, long journey back from the Mediterranean in the UK to New Zealand to bring back convalescing patients. All in all, 47,000 carried. Uh, along with a few German POWs. So it's a lot for two relatively small ships. They were busy. Okay, let's go back to Gallipoli. This is what's known as the Ladder of Good Progress. In other words, this is what had been worked out on the Western Front. You go through a whole series of things from the immediate first aid in the battlefront through processes of evacuation, transport, back to Blighty, convalescence, and then there's an eighth in the case of Aussies and Kiwis, and that's being shipped back to keep up um, spare space in the hospitals. That wasn't possible at Anzac. Here's a shot of a British hospital ship behind that submarine and seaplane carrier straight off the beach. So there's no long, long chain 
of undamaged towns and cities, railway infrastructure, places where you could have triage away from the battlefield. In fact, there's nowhere for the hospital ship to anchor. There's no wharf, there's nothing. So it's a totally different situation. There's the only decent, well, uh, not decent shot. Uh, this is the best that we've been able to find of her off Gallipoli. It's a bit fuzzy. Okay. On top of that, Gallipoli, um, most of the lessons that have been learnt earlier on the Western Front seem to have been forgotten. There was confusion. There was no real planning. Initially, just two hospital ships were to accompany the troops. That's both British and Anzac ones going there. Not enough of everything. Uh, there were no safe areas for treatment. Everything was under fire, including even the ships off anchor. And of course, loading and unloading a ship in the open sea in whatever uh, weather comes and at the risk of gunfire is totally different to being at Boulogne or Le Havre alongside uh, an Atlantic liner pier, perfectly safe and able to move people in and out quickly. So it's a different sort of war. And there are some scenes from uh, one of Lord Liverpool's books from 1916, just showing the sort of thing. Shuttling from uh, Anzac Beach either to the Greek island of Lemnos or across to Alexandria. Just shuttle, shuttle, shuttle. Because it takes a very long time to get the wounded, many of whom are cot cases on stretchers, up from bouncing little lighter or whaleboat, up onto the ship, process and in many cases sent over the other side if they weren't too badly wounded to a, a drifter or a minesweeper to be taken somewhere else because the ships took the more seriously wounded people. Um, the only uh, merchant mariner who's left much information is John Duda, his diaries at the Auckland War Memorial Museum and he's talking constantly about the horror. You know, the ship anchors and everyone including the firemen and trimmers who are absolutely exhausted Remember, this ship was a coal eater. They're up on the deck helping the nurses, doctors and orderlies process, triaging, as they would have said, in MASH. These patients, often more than the ship could really uh, cover. It wasn't always a smooth uh, thing. Uh, the literature after the war spoke in glowing terms about... Uh, what a superb ship it was, how brilliantly managed. Yes, they, they worked wonders, but there were a number of tensions. The first is, is Colonel William Collins, who was the officer commanding, in other words, the chief medical officer aboard the ship. He was a bit of a bastard, uh, became a politician after World War I, uh, made a major contribution to New Zealand medical history, but he's tetchy, and even with his superiors back in Wellington, at one stage he tried to have the Mahino rebuilt and the transport board said, how can we fit all this in a ship that's 450 feet long? And by the way, does he really want to start blowing air that is 110 degrees in the Mediterranean summer down to a ship that's 90 degrees? Uh, not a very practical person. Uh, he denied the nurse's officer status, tried to take command of the ship, or at least was stupid enough to ask uh, Wellington, am I in charge or the ship's master? You've all heard the expression, master under God. Colin should have known that. There was also a, a mutiny by the Stokehold gang off uh, Malta in September. Remember I talked about the, all the problems with the Mahino. I mean, she was a pain even in the cool to freezing 
Southland Run as she's crossing between Hobart and Bluff. Imagine what she was like in a Mediterranean summer. And it was a combination of the master's lack of understanding uh, and just a shortages, uh, shortage of crew, which meant that they uh, went on strike. It was called a mutiny. The ship went back to Malta and they were in prison. And then Lord Liverpool constantly interfered. They were his pet project. And he did a number of things that really annoyed quite a number of the people aboard the ships, but also Sir James Allen and Massey back in New Zealand. Particularly, he arbitrarily set a six-month term for the medical officers, not the orderlies, the officers, and at the end of which they could resign their commissions and disappear. And of course, many of them did. So he had the ships coming back and many, but not all voyages, a large number of these experienced people who finally got their head around the difficulty of operating at sea, a hospital, disappeared. Sometimes because they were worried that their locums might get too popular with their patients. There are some of the statistics. Uh, as I said before, they were quite crowded little ships. And that did lead to a lot of tensions. Um, there were a lot of um, UK accents aboard, even the New Zealand seafarers, but again, very common uh, during that time. Hierarchical. New Zealand was a much more hierarchical society then, but ev even then. So you got the crews, the officers, and the engineers and the deck uh, officers didn't always get on. Then you got the ratings, the personnel, as the army staff are called. The doctors, nurses and orderlies, the first two have officer status, despite what Collins thought. Then you've got the divisions between the officers and the ordinary ranks amongst the patients, and some differences between the UK officers' uh, idea of what their treatment should be and what was actually available. There are some of the engineers, here are some of the nurses, the orderlies and the doctors. Um, food was always a uh, subject of great interest, uh, and you see the, the number of different uh, styles of menus that you would have. The patients always had special diets if they needed it, otherwise <laughs> certainly people knew what other people were getting. And it was, it's just the same with the troop transports going out in 1914. This is, by the way, uh, an officer's menu for luncheon aboard the Marama. Uh, most of the patients who came back recovered during the long voyage. Um, not many were cot cases at the end. It was quite common for, say, 80% uh, at the start of voyage back to Australasia to be cot cases, in other words, not walking or not walking easily. By the end of the voyage, that would be down to 20%. It was a period in 1917-18 when the Germans uh, intensified submarine warfare and a number of hospital ships were sunk. Some were lost. This is the Britannic, the sister of the Titanic, through mines and their indiscriminate uh, weapons. But there's no doubt that a number of vessels were sunk by submarines. Now, I think you could say that quite often under misty sea conditions or at, at night, even if the ships were illuminated, it's possible to make one or two mistakes, but not that number of mistakes. And at one stage, uh, you saw the n nurses who were women taken off the ships by both the British and the New Zealand authorities. Extra red crosses were put on the funnels, and that was it. Just want to conclude with a couple of comments. The first, and it's the thing I'm going to explore in the War at Sea thing. Truth, Murrayland worker, the unions accused the union company of being a bunch of ratbags, you know, robber barons, profiteers, etc. 
it's interesting going through the papers. Um, the union company charged the standard admiralty rate and even gave a slight discount to what the UK owners often offered on the ships. So in that sense, truth was wrong. But what most people don't realise is that, again, these are standard imperial agreements, is that the government picked up almost all the operating costs for their ships. And here's a couple of examples. They're down their bottom, Manuka. She was the ship before the Mahina, just a bit smaller, slightly cheaper to operate. Income there, £39,000. Cost, 34000 So it's a return on capital of about 10%. Good, but not exceptional. Mahino, same period, 38,000 costs, uh, sorry, income, costs 1,263. That's the interesting thing, and that's why you see in 1917 and 18 all the British shipping companies taking over each other. P&O buys the Union Company in 1917, it takes the Federal Line and the New Zealand Shipping Company in 1916. It's all about concealing profits. Mills, before he sells the line in 1917, is embarrassed by the degree of profit that they are making. Now, these are rates set by the government, but even someone like Mills is embarrassed by the whole process. So that's something I want to tease out a bit more. It certainly changed the shape of the shipping industry. And of course, seeing we're doing a lot on heritage of World War I, I just want to finish with a couple of things. The most obvious uh, thing, if you know Otago, around the registry is the Marama Hall, originally the Mahino and Marama Hall. Mahino was uh, scrapped, or was about to be scrapped in 1935, the end of her life, was being towed to Japan and got caught up in a storm and cast ashore in Queensland. And her wreck can still be seen there today quite a popular tourist attraction on Fraser Island. One of the major World War I projects in Auckland at the moment is the restoration of uh, one of the oil launches that was supplied to the hospital ship. This is the Nautilus from the Marama. It was gifted two years ago, along with the assurance that um, it was full of bullet holes fired by the Turks, which is a bit of a hard stretch given that the Marama arrived too late for Gallipoli. Uh, so they've been stripping the various layers of accretions since the 1920s off, and they've found borer, they've found holes, but no bullet holes. So I think that Voyager is expecting to get her probably in a hospital ship garb up and running for Anzac Day in 1915. Thank you very much.